Hi, I'm your host, James Barrow, a creative turned marketing director with over 20 years' experience in the advertising industry. Join me as I go behind the scenes with a range of innovative thinkers. Hear what inspires them, their processes, and the methods to their madness. Find insights that can help unlock your creative potential and apply them in your life, career, and business. Right here on The B-Side with James Barrow. How can you become a more persuasive writer and public speaker? And what are the most powerful ways to convince others to champion your cause? In episode 24 of The B-Side, I speak to Mr. Nyungai Warren Mundine Ayo, an Australian Aboriginal leader, businessman, political strategist, media commentator, author and advocate for empowering Aboriginal Australians in building businesses and sustainable economies. Warren talks about growing up as one of 11 children in a poor Catholic family held together by incredibly hardworking, loving yet stoic parents, and his amazing journey from his early life in country New South Wales, where he was subjected to discrimination and racism and segregation then moving to Australia's most multicultural suburb in Sydney, Auburn, where he developed a fascination and love for foreign cultures and overcame his personal hardships to then scale the heights of political power to become national president of the Australian Labor Party and advisor to five prime ministers, both Labor and Liberal. He shares his no-nonsense, plain-speaking approach to writing, public speaking, and the importance of focusing on the human impacts at the core of the complicated policies he discusses. Warren is one of the most engaging personalities in the Australian political spectrum. I'm so thrilled to have been able to have him on the show. It's a cracking episode. I hope you find it as inspiring and enjoyable as I did. Cheers. And I'm hitting record here. We're live. Excellent. And I'm live with one of the most exciting and influential leaders in Australia, Mr. Nyungai Warren Mundine, AO. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah, I'm really excited to have you on and speak to you about all things book-related, public speaking-related, effective and persuasive writing. I think you have shown to be one of the most impactful public speakers and writers I think Australia has known for some time. And I've got a whole bunch of questions I'd really just love to ask you. But first, I'll just start with how have you been and what's been keeping you busy? Well, I'm embarrassed now. I've got to give up to that. Uh, (laughs) Everything's good. Uh, You know, very busy. As people know, I I write for the Financial Review as well as the Australian Daily Telegraph. And I also uh, am working on another book at the moment. Plus, you know, I sit on some boards and I run about three different companies. So, yeah, it's a... it's a busy life, but I I, I got a great belief that I'm never going to retire, uh, even if I don't get paid. So I'll be volunteering for some hospital or something and help driving some old people around or whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a, because life's great. Yeah, life's really good. Well, why don't we start from the beginning? And I want to be really mindful of your time. And I've got a list of questions that a lot of people have asked me to ask you. So out of respect for them and respect for your time, I'd like to sort of try and get through that list. People really (laughs) find that your... Your perspective on things is very refreshing amongst a sea of lawyers and bureaucrats who make up the political landscape and the leadership landscape. You're like a refreshing bastion of common sense and just no bullshit. So yeah, I like that. I like that. I like that term, no bullshit. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we start with where you're from? You know what you do and your backstory. We do have quite a few North American listeners. Those from the UK probably are familiar with you. But um, why don't we just start from where it all started? I was born in Grafton, which is on the uh, North Coast of New South Wales. My family come out of a little Aboriginal community called Bayugal 
which is about 80 kilometres up the Clarence Valley, which is the main uh, river that runs down through Grafton out the sea. Grafton, of course, was founded as a timber town, so that's where they used to float the logs down, the cedar logs, because it was cedar country, down to Grafton and then load them on the ships to sail off to England or Europe or wherever they were going to take the timber. My people... Of course, from my father's side, they come uh, They come from up around that Bayougal area and they worked on the cattle stations uh, after the Europeans come here in 1840. Uh, they came up to that area. So it was around 1840 they worked with the Aboriginal community. I spent the first part of my life and you know, my childhood in that area growing up and had the freedoms of being a country boy. You go hunting and fishing and and uh, do crazy things. Could you imagine this? I had 11 members of our family. Uh, my mum and dad, they were good Catholics and I don't think they had a TV. And, uh, <laughs> and so uh, oh, that's put a really bad vision in my head. I just thought, oh, my God, my mum and dad. Well, you know what a picture that you've put in my head with your hunting <laughs> and you talk about this in the book and we can come back to that. Is, um, your, 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 I love your book. All the humour in your book is fantastic. And how do you yeah, eat it sure. in the kidna? How do you bash it on the head until its spikes fall off? And what does it taste like? A bit like porcupine. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, well, yeah. It's, well, that's because I like to keep it simple. Uh, yeah, you know, I think you know, and it's not a criticism of other people or anyone else. It's, it's because you know some people are very good with language and very good with you know uh, uh, with English the English language. And I'm just a, a very simple bloke. I you know I you know grew up in a very poor family, eleven of us. Can you imagine this? Eight brothers, eight you know, like could you imagine eight of me? Yeah. It's amazing. It's horrifying. Yeah. Uh, Good Catholic so, family. And, <laughs> yeah. And so we, we were just a bunch of bush kids and do crazy stuff. And I've got so many scars on my body and broken bones. It's not, it's not funny. Went to Sydney and worked in a factory in Sydney as a, a 16-year-old uh, fitter and turner. Sure. Apprentice. And, and so I had this amazing life. I, I actually looked back and it, it took a, a year 11 kid in high school to ask me this question about what was it like being that 16-year-old kid in a factory? Now, here you are, you know, 40 years later, and you're in this upper echelon and, and prime ministers talk to you. And, and I've spoken to the Chinese leadership, leadership and other people, the prime ministers of New Zealand, Canada and so on, business people, billionaires. It wasn't really a plan. So I looked at, um, I looked at some of this stuff, you know, like, I'd be walking along and I'd see a, a broken fence and I'd say, oh, I can fix that fence and I'd fix it. And then I'd go along a bit further and I'd see something else broken. I'd say, oh, yeah, I can. Next thing you know, I'm sitting as a leader of the Labor Party, I was president of the Labor Party, you know, and it was like, wow, how did I get here? <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And then writing, you know, I, I was, wasn't very a great writer and that until later in my life around when I got to about 30, 30 32, 33, I started sure essays and speeches and prior to that I was just a, a fitter and turner in a factory and then I was working on sewer lines and gas pipelines digging holes with a pick and shovel and yeah. and uh, going off and working this one I try and hide because it was a taxation office <laughs> there for a, a few years and then yeah uh, and then got then decided that I was a bad employee so I uh, I had to 
you know, form my own business and get from there because I, I wasn't very good at taking orders. And- taking orders, yeah. You, you mentioned moving to Sydney, and I know you lived in Auburn for some time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, still then, and probably still one of Australia's most multicultural suburbs, you moved there and you were just a kid from a different culture. And, and albeit, even though your culture is Australia's culture, that was quite alien to a lot of these kids, you know? They didn't understand oh, yeah. anything about Aboriginal culture. Yeah, well, I was the first Aboriginal kid that I've actually met and, and it was and it was and it was also the other way around you know, where I met this uh, this kid and he said look I've never met an Aboriginal kid before and I said oh okay what nationality are you what's your ethnic background and he said he said he was Estonian and I went oh, well, there's no such place in Estonia you know I thought it sounded like it just made up made it up from the Flintstones <laughs> and, uh, and he was a very smart kid he's he, probably the first time I walked into a library he said come I'll take you to the library Went down the library, got out the atlas, and there's Estonia. And then it opens up a conversation, you know, like, you know, what Aboriginals eat, what they, uh, what's their cultural stuff and all this, and uh, saying, well, what are Estonians eat and, and what language do Estonians speak? And they, he said Estonian. <laughs> <laughs> and so so that immediately opened my world up to the – because where I come from in, in, in rural uh, Australia was only two cultures, really. It was the Aboriginal culture and the white culture, the Anglo-Saxon culture, and, sure. and and that was it. Coming to Sydney, and as you said, Auburn. It, Auburn seemed to be a place that attracted people when they first come to Australia, and then after they after a couple of generations, they moved on. So I met all these people who were just countries I never heard of. People who, who just got off the boat, their parents. Definitely didn't speak English. They were they were they were escaping from the from you know the Second World War and that uh, and the aftermath, the economic collapses there. They come to Australia to start a new life. So and even some of the kids didn't even speak English. And and of course there were Greeks and Italians and Croatians and Serbians and and then it was then there was Lebanese after the, the Six Day War and, uh, and then Turks come in, in in the early seventies and stuff like that. Yeah. So we had this incredible mixture of kids and it was really interesting that's what gave me my love for learning because i just want to know more about these cultures yeah all these people what are they like do they, they yeah do? yeah and uh, and it was just and that's then of course i traveled after that and it was just incredibly amazing meeting people i just love sitting here listening to people mm, yeah and observing. You talk about being influenced by their work ethic as well and their resourcefulness as a as a yeah. migrant community which leads me to my next question. Your father was quite a big influence. And I just wanted to ask you, who were some of the people or the influences that shaped who you are today? First of all, of course, my, my father and mother were the first influences on me. And, and, of course, I was with number nine in the family, so my older siblings, and like my older brother, he served in uh, Vietnam. Uh, he, did, he was a regular soldier. He, he served yeah. tours in Vietnam. He was in the Confrataze when Indonesia invaded Malaysia, and he also... Yeah. In, uh, in Malaysia when the, when the communist uprising was there. Sure. He had a tremendous influence on me and, and also because in the second trip to Vietnam, of course, he uh, tread on a mine and had his leg blown off and he was severely injured. And, and his stoicism and his uh, strength of that, and, you know, he, he first served 38 years in the military. Now, my sisters had a really big influence on because they were women before their time, like yeah. my Sister Anne in, in 1959. Can you imagine? There's 1959 a woman working in the bank. She yeah. went in the rural bank in those days, and uh, the, and she was an Aboriginal woman working in the bank, which was 
unheard of. My second older sister, Olive, she did the same thing. She went into the Rural Bank and Bondi Junction in Sydney here and worked there. And then she uh, then she went on and was a model for David Jones. Uh, yeah, you, you can tell where I got my good looks from. <laughs> and Mate, it's actually more hair than I've got, that's for sure. I'm so jealous. <laughs> In fact, it was, I had this really incredible moment about five or six years ago where David Jones, the department store for people, a large, uh, very high fluted department store where you buy the most expensive clothes and stuff like that. And she, and, and she, they had the 170th anniversary and, and they had this exhibition of them as the first Aboriginal model. And that was in the, in the sixties she was. And that was, you know, with Maggie Tabler, Tabler and all these other famous Australian uh, models, and so it was really wow. It was just so, and also my younger sister, uh, she's still older than me, but my younger sister, hey, she she also worked in the bank, rural bank, in the late sixties, and she went on and worked in the New South Wales Public uh, Commission, Public Service Commission, and went on to the Public Service Commission at the federal level. And she set up all these Aboriginal training programs and employment programs in the public service, and she did some work for for the UN and that. And she, they were just Amazing women before their time, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, and also they were very generous. Like people don't think about this these days, but in the sixties, uh, girls just didn't go out. Women just they they had to have chaperones and this yeah, time. Yeah. And so, yeah, but they were very clever. So they they said, "Oh look, we'll take out our younger brothers with us, and they'll be our chaperones. Make not make sure no hanky panky plays up." <laughs> Me and my two younger brothers, we went to parties and barbecues, went to the beach, and went to all these. Models and so on. Yeah, hanging out with these incredible, amazing people. And we had a, <laughs> of course, and we had the, the rule. Uh, my sister's told me, just don't tell mum and dad what happens on, when we go out. And I said, no, no, we're just going to say we had a great time. Oh, that's fantastic. So it's quite a clan, the Mundines. I didn't yeah. realize until reading your book that Mundine, everyone with a surname Mundine is essentially related to you because it's yeah. unique to your region and it's unique to yeah. your family and your people. It's a, a, a name in the United States because I met some people like there the name Mundine in England, but they come from a different area. Our name actually is a, is a bastardization of uh, my great, great, great grandfather. He His name was Mundy and mm. he was on cattle stations up in southern Queensland and in northern New South Wales. And then in the, in the books, in the farmer books, they'd have oh, the Aboriginal man, uh, Mundy. And then it, after a few years, it became Harry Mundy. And then sure. after three years after that, it became uh, Harry Mundy. Yeah, that's fascinating. I find it really hard. I'm trying to track down my dad's father's side of the family. He grew up in Kingaroy uh, in a mission up there, and he had no idea who his parents were, but he was shipped out to work on farms. But we know that, like, he was Indigenous and from that area, or if not taken from one of the local areas and put into one of the um, orphanages and missions yep, there. that's right, yeah. So it's been a lifelong yeah. mission for myself, and it's really hard because, for you know, for all intents and purposes, my family are largely Scottish, Irish, English and a bit of French and and then there's some distant Jewish as well. Bit of a mixed bag, really. Oh, the some... Irish part's not too bad. I don't know about the Scottish. Yeah, yeah. Because my mother's like, side. Yeah, you, black... you do have Scottish. Oh, yeah, 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 I have about... Irish background because there's a lot of Aboriginals in, in New South Wales uh, mm. are called Donovan and they're descended from uh, William Donovan who come out to Australia around the 1840s, 1850s and mm. married. Aboriginal woman on the south coast of New South Wales and, and, and all these Aboriginal, uh, yeah, there's a big mob of them, so they're pretty good breeders. Yeah, but yeah. 
and that's where my Catholicism comes from, from that Irish line. And you heard of the singer, of course. That, uh, Casey Donovan. All oh, right. Casey Donovan, she's, she's related to my mother. So. She's related to your mother. You, you're Mundines and you, you guys are just... Oh, we're everywhere. We're like the we're like the market. We're just everywhere. <laughs> uh, another one of your famous um, relatives is uh, um, Anthony Mundine. Yeah, Anthony Mundine and Tony Mundine. Our North American listeners will know Anthony Mundine from his boxing exploits and being um, interim and um, I think international world champion. I think he held yeah, a few yeah. belts. Yeah, he held a couple of world titles, and also he played uh, rugby. Uh, I think the Americans would call it rugby, the rugby league for us. And, uh, and a very good footballer. And Tony was similar. He was at rugby league and then he yeah. went boxing. The Brit- I think the English would know him a lot better because he won Commonwealth titles. And, and, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Fought Carlos Monson for the world uh, middleweight title. Yeah. I, I can't speak about Tony, but I have a first-hand account of Anthony Mundine's just all-round athleticism. Like We mm. used to go down to play, uh, Newtown Police Boys and play basketball and see him there, five foot eleven, slam dunking the basketball, and I'm six one. I can barely even touch the ring. And you know, anything he picked up, he played table tennis, and he could no. beat anyone. You know, he was just an all round. People don't understand how he was just a legend. The guy was just amazing. Yeah. Oh, and kids love him. Uh, I've seen him. He's like the pipe piper. He walks down the street, and kids just run up to him and you know play basketball with him or, or you know do a few jabs and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Criticism is very common in the mundane family, as you can tell from my physique. It's, yeah. uh, <laughs> but or, or ambition. I think you're all very ambitious, aren't you? And I'm, you know, oh, well, well, just because of our background, you know, yeah. we, took, we took it from a very early stage. You know, you talked about who had influences, my father and, and grandparents and stuff like that. They were very strong about us not being victims and, yeah. that, and not having that victim mentality about us. And that, no matter what life throws at you, you just take it and you work with it, you make your life better. And, and so they're very hard workers. My father, right up to his death, you know, he used to get up at 5 a.m. all the yeah, time. Yeah. That's how we knew he died, actually, because he got up at 5, very much a disciplined bloke, and he get up at 5 a.m., you know, clean his teeth and have a shave and get dressed, and, and then he'd go to the newsagent and get his paper, and, and, and my brother went down the newsagent's at seven o'clock, and the news agent said, What's wrong with your father? And he said, uh, What do you mean? He said, Well, he didn't turn up for his paper today. That's, oh, right. uh, that's how we knew he died there. Yeah, wow. So, went around yeah. the house and he died in his sleep. There you go. Yeah, you, you, you speak at great length about how he called work to be a worker was a virtue. Working yeah, was yeah. a virtue. Yeah. He was him and my grandfather, very, but on my mother's side and my mother's side, that, that were very. Stoic workers, you know, and they used to say things like, uh, if, "If I said, oh, uh, what, who, what do you think of James?" And I said, oh, "Well, they use he's a worker, yeah. well, he's not a worker." And and that had all these connotations about it, like uh, he's a worker, he feeds his family, he looks after, yeah, his, yeah. looks after his kids and stuff like that. Or if he's not a worker, he doesn't feed his family, he doesn't look after his kids, he doesn't look after his family. And it was that's how they, they, they were very hard. Well, my grandfather on my mother's side, he was a, a sawmiller and he, he had a few <laughs> fingers uh, and uh, he, used to play, he used to play party tricks with his mitten fingers and that. And, uh, and my grandfather, of course, was uh, a cattle station, worked in, in the cattle stations and that was tough work in those days, around 1900, right up to the 1940s and it was tough. 
I was going to ask you about Lionel Rose and the impact that had on you, him winning the world title from the Japanese world champion fighting Harada in 1968. Why was that such an important moment for you? Uh, it was so, so important because it was just after the 67 referendum in Australia where uh, where the Commonwealth government, uh, the federal government as we call it now, uh, powers to, to act on, uh, uh, with Aboriginal people. And, and before that, it was we were controlled by the states. Uh, and the, and depending what state you lived in, uh, determined the sort of whether you had a good life or a bad life. And so, um, uh, so we were, you know, always trying to look for heroes and, and look for things. And, and, and my and my father was a very great. This is probably why Tony and Anthony. I have a lot of boxers in my family. Uh, he was a very, uh, you know, strong boxer type bloke. You know, you know, old tent boxing. They used to go around the tent. yeah, yeah, yeah. They used to go and fight in those and, and, and win a pound or a, you know, or a dollar they call it today, I suppose. So win yeah. a pound and, and stuff like that. And that's how you earn some extra money by going in those tent fights. And and all and what impressed me was that Lionel Rose was a young Aboriginal bloke. 19 at the time, actually 19, he fought for this world title. Amazing. He came from Jackson Flat. Now, Jackson Flat's an old uh, spot route where, the, where drovers used to drive the cattle along. Aboriginals, because we uh, we were driven off our land and either went on the missions or they, or they lived on these stock routes. And they used to live in tin shacks. And, uh, and that's what my family did at, at Kwayugal. And then knowing that this boat came from Jackson Flat, and here we was in Tokyo, I had to, Went back in the library again. Looked up this, looked up the, uh, where Tokyo was, and, and he went over there and he fought in their backyard. And what he taught me, and because he, he won the title and held it for a few years, uh, in fact, undisputed, not like today where you've got three or four champions in each division. He was not mm. the only champion at the Bantamweight. And when he came home from uh, Tokyo, 100,000 people met him at the airport. Just unheard of. He was such a hero. I said myself was, if I work hard like he had to train and get fit and, and, and do things, then then I could, you know, whether it's you know getting an education or doing something, hmm. I could make a difference in my life too. I could I could be successful in my life, and that's the thing. It taught me that nothing can hold you back hmm. if you go hmm. uh, and, and you determine to. To meet the discipline of what you were choosing. So, like if you're writing, the discipline of the writing. If you're, if you're going to become a lawyer, the discipline of the lawyers or the surgeon. You know how, the, how do you get that 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 dexterity of your hands and control of, of operating? So, if you're prepared to do that, then you can do great things. Yeah, I know your culture's had a huge impact on you as well. And in the book, you do speak a lot about that. I'm really intrigued by song lines and how little most mainstream Australians know. <laughs> about them. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of songlines to your culture? And I, I see it as a, there's a parallel in that you're a storyteller, you're a writer, yeah. you're, you're a speaker. Yeah, there are some wonderful parallels here. I just wondered if you could speak about songlines. Well, well songlines is how the universe operates. It, it goes back to the dream time, the, the creation of, of everything. And, and it, it was about the song lines, the journeys of these dreaming ancestors who, who shaped the world and, and, and shaped the rivers and the mountains and the trees and shaped the culture and, and how human beings operate and, and your relationship to nature and the environment and stuff. And they, they run for quite a few kilometres, these song lines. So it's a, it's a line that travels across country. And along that country, each group has a 
ceremony of that. And, and they call it song lines because they sing it. So, like, I use an example, the Caterpillar Dreaming, where it starts in Central Australia and travels down to the coast of northern New South Wales. And, and each group along that has a part of that story and they sing it. And so when they go to ceremonies, this group will sing this part, this group will sing this part, this group will sing this part. And they'll have the dance, the music. And so, and it is very much a story. And this is why... The way, like when I, the way I write something, I write about economics and stuff, and people say, you write it quite interesting because you write it as a story And I, because I want people to understand economics because it's so boring. Yeah. <laughs> In business, sorry, fellas out there, uh, yeah. they'll pick me off the field of review now. That, <laughs> so I try and... Uh, put it in a language in, the, in that storytelling about how it affects people's lives, you know. So yeah. how does the economy, how does the finance, how, how, how does the taxation and that. So I put it in that song line, about yeah. singing, of course, and dancing. I put it in that song line story type thing. So I tell stories. And uh, and that's very much uh, uh, an Australian Aboriginal way of doing things. So we tell stories. Yeah. Uh, that explains how the universe operates, how how society operates and that. And so there's two big things people got to understand if you want to understand Aboriginal people. There's the song lines and kinship. So we have this enormous kinship structure. So, for instance, my father, I'll call him father, but my brother, my father's brother is also my father. Sure. And my father's brother's children are my siblings and my mother's sister is my mother as well. So you have this enormous, and you don't only get the, the name mother, father, and grandmother and grandfather in it, it actually has a, a, a responsibility that comes with it and how you deal with other people and and, and and communicate with other people and so on. So it's a, and that's why people sit there and go, gee, there's a lot of cousins and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and all this type of stuff. Anthony, for instance, Anthony is a distant cousin of mine in European terms, but in my terms, he is my son. So once you understand that, you start to understand how, how people are and why they act like that and how, why they do things like that. Yeah. Sure. I think there's very, very little discourse around there being 400 different language groups in Australia yeah. and you yeah. talk and educate people on your country and how yes. you don't see yourself as this homogenous um, yes. representative of all Indigenous countries, yeah. but you are you, you are from your country and you can speak yeah. on behalf of that. Um, oh, that, that, that is very important for us. Uh, uh, Aboriginal people that, for instance, I'm living in Sydney. I can't talk for the country of Sydney. I like the Kemeragal people are the people of the area I live in. Because you, through those song lines and through those kinship structures, you are actually tied to a certain geographic area. And, and, that, and you become part of that environment. You are, and so when I go up the Clarence River, you know, 80 kilometres up the Clarence River, and, I, and I, on that country, it, it is really, I've, it has this, spiritual and, and incredible thing on happening in my body and how I think and what I do. And I can I can sit and talk about that. But when it comes to say across the river, about about hundred kilometers down the river across from us, I can't talk about those people's country. That's it. That's their country. That's yeah, their yeah. only can speak for the country. So I talk about that a lot. I say so so this idea that you can have a national Aboriginal Congress or something like that is, is alien to us because we come from these different nations and yeah. different countries. And, and that's how we talk about each other and we have our, our structures and that. This is why through native title and land rights, uh, you, have this, uh, you have this group of people who just, they have this ownership, this custodianship 
uh, this relationship with that country, but they can't they can't have that with it, with someone else's country because it's sure. not theirs. it's not theirs. Yeah. Just switching gears quickly and moving on to your recent work, you're on television, you've got podcasts, you you know, your books you've got in black and white, that's speaking your mind, you've written numerous papers, you've written four numerous papers. Um, Your most recent report you wrote was for, um, and I love the title of this, it's so you, it's the Economy Stupid report on... um, uh, the closing the gap initiative yes. and how we're tracking as far as the objectives of that initiative are concerned. To me, the heading of that of that uh, research paper was, you know, I, I plagiarised that, of course, from uh, Bill Clinton. It was, you know, the economy stupid. Uh, is that? Yes, uh, I didn't draw the connection, but now you think. Yeah, yeah. Don't, there are no other connections between me and Bill, so <laughs> I will leave it at that. But uh, but because I think it's it's so true. You know, I look at uh, every society you now uh, that lift their people out of poverty and to build a, a future for them and to build a healthy, uh, strong society, you do need an economy. You do need to be able to, uh, to feed people and to, and to clothe people, to house people, to to uh, to, ha- to able to be travelling around, to, uh, to to make sure you've got best medical service. You know, when you look at the top 20 countries in the OECD, uh, it, there's no coincidence, and that's done on an economic scale, there's no coincidence that when you look at health scale, it's, it's the same 20 countries. And when you look mm-hmm. at the education scale, it's the same 20 countries. And when you look at uh, when you look at any other uh, measurement of, of human endeavour, it's, it's the same countries. So I see uh, uh, the economy is so central to uh, lifting people out of poverty and, and, and shifting them ahead. You only just look at China, for instance, in the last 30, 40 years, and shifted, what, four to 500 million people out of poverty because of the changes they did to their economy for that to happen. And you see that around the world. You see it in the United States, you see it in Canada, you see it in Mexico, you see it in Europe. Uh, you see it everywhere. You see some of these African countries who are, who are now really moving ahead, like Botswana and that. Uh, they have done that because they're able to to drive this economy, and look at Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Singapore, and all these places. And uh, and and I also know that through that, through this economic thing, it, it is a culture of its own. So as I always use the analogy of a truck uh, driving business and driving economies like driving a truck. You get in it, no matter who you are, you're Chinese, Japanese, African, uh, yeah, European, whatever. Uh, you still got to turn the truck on. You've got to put it in gear. You've got to move it forward, and that. But they, they're still the Chinese. They're still the Chinese person. They're still the Japanese person. They're still the African person. They're still the European cultured person. Uh, so your culture can operate within that. You didn't always start with that view, though, did you? I think you started on the other side of. What would you call yourself now? More of a community-based neoliberal, where you would you're looking for policies that will empower. Empower people, yes. Empower people to get out yeah. of poverty through through the economy. Yeah, yeah, through the economy and through your. Um, but you started out as a Labor Party uh, yeah. pr- president. Well, so, you well, were so like one of the biggest activists known to man. You 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 yeah. sabotaged. I got locked the, up and I got <laughs> got beaten. I still got scars. And I, I love the story of the, the Commonwealth Games, where in yeah. what was it, nineteen eighty two, where you yeah. um, where you 
you ransacked the, you grabbed the, the yeah. you better tell the story because I've uh, I look, and, uh, Well, what we did was, uh, of course, the, the, the Commonwealth Games is, is, is like, us, for our American people, it's like, it's, it's like the Pan American Games. So it's all the countries coming together. Well, the Commonwealth Games are the old countries of the British Empire. They come together uh, from Africa and Asia and around the world and they compete in this Olympic games type competition. Anyway, the Queen of England, uh, Great Britain and England, she's also Queen of Australia, sends a message out to, be, uh, to open the games. And so we watched, we seen where, where the message was going and we said, okay, we need to do this protest. How can we uh, hijack this to highlight the issues of uh, 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 Aboriginal people in Australia? And this is the true story, but I was talking to a couple of Aboriginal uh, female students and they said, oh, we, we got this idea we jumped the fence. We, we'll get in with the, the, the message stick as it was, and, and we'll be able to hijack the ceremony. And I said, like, great idea. So I, I sat there, and so when they said, we, they put the idea forward, and they said, okay, we need some volunteers. So I thought these two girls were going to put their hand up. So I, I thought, I'll be glad yourself. I said, I'll volunteer if no one else wants it. And I expected, oh, no, we, we, they just sat there, and I went, okay. <laughs> So then I had to train for a couple of weeks, running around and getting fit. And uh, so what we did is I, I got dressed up in this uh, black, red and yellow shirt and shorts and stuff, uh, which is the, the colours of the Aboriginal flag, uh, black for the people, uh, red for the land and, and, and yellow for the sun, which is the giver of life. Anyway, so we um, so that, that all these athletes are running down, uh, down uh, in William Street in Adelaide there and I... Like, as they come close to me, I jumped the fence and I, and I ran in amongst them. And they thought, they thought I was part of the act. And they said, oh, how are you going? They said, we're jogging along like this. And then I realised I have to get out in front of them before they get the message to the Lord Mayor of the city. So I bolted then and they sort of, what's he up to? Then I got there and he thought that I was part of the ceremony too. So I gave him my message and he grabs it and he goes and rolls it out and he's going to give this uh, shout it out to the, to, to the world. And he says, and then I, he goes, we're the Aboriginal people. <laughs> <laughs> and next minute, all these coppers come out and just jump on top of me. And oh, no. Away. So you, all, the, all the media followed me because that was more exciting than the, <laughs> the Lord Mayor uh, reading your boring message. So. The, 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 and and uh, then I hit the, the national stage after that. Her yeah. Majesty's message. <laughs> no, I think yours would have been far more. Do you still have that? I'd love to read that. The, that actually, I, I got it in. Uh, I got it in the garage. Actually, I've got a big box of stuff, and, and I even got these photos of me in my very uh, sexy uh, running out running gear. Oh, I'd like to see both. Probably preferably, <laughs> preferably. <laughs> the, the, the message that the Lord yeah. Mayor didn't quite get to read, but um, yeah. if you could share that with us, that'd be fantastic. That'd, that'd be funny. Yeah. And, and it's still in the archives there. The Adelaide advertising. Yeah, it's such an important it's photo of me. And one of my lecturers at university, she made me laugh because the next day after they let me out the police cells, uh, I turned up for lecture, and she, and she goes, oh, "Warren," and she said, "I was half asleep you know, at, at home uh, in uh, about uh, ten o'clock when the, the national news come on." And I sort of had my eye open. The next one here, you were running at me. And I sort of, whoa, what's going on here? And, and I said, do I, do I get an A-plus for that? And she said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I won't spend too much time on the politics, but I just want to mm. ask you, because it does go back to persuasive, making a difference. I know you, you write so well because you write to what you believe. And what was it about the Labor Party and your lack of traction there, or was that it, that – 
cause you to well, rethink rethink how you can have that influence? And when was what was that point where you decided? It to- was pretty amazing because I had a very quick climb on that idea, uh, and I was within what five eight years. Within eight years, I was the national president of the mm. and uh, and. And I had a really good time because I'm very passionate about what I believe in, and uh, and I and I was you know coming from that factory in Silverwater, it still hasn't got out of my blood. And in fact, I was, uh, only today I did a, a Zoom conference with people, and we were talking about our background, and it turned out that we were all ex tradies, and now yeah, yeah. the university do things, but we're more proud of being a tradie than actually being a, a university graduate. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it, it's uh, it's to me it's I, I write about what I believe in, yeah. I, 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 and this is what got me in trouble with the Labor Party because it's a very di- political. It doesn't matter if it's Labor or Liberal or whatever. It's very disciplined. You got to you always got to sing the song of the party. And and I was sitting there even when I was president, I got in trouble because I was talking about education and, and the ed- education minister was the Labor Party. So I said that's not our policy. And I said. <laughs> I think my policy is better than your policy. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So they they thought it was a bit ill-disciplined for me to do that. And this is where it comes back to me being a bad employee because I wasn't just going to go and sit there in, in Parliament and, uh, and just toe the line. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted people to get educated and have the opportunity to get educated so they can make that choice. And I wanted people to able to get jobs and and, and feed their families. And so it was very basic stuff that I, I believed in. You know? and that, so that was one of the issues. Yeah, uh, and, and, the, and, of course, the other issue was uh, after I got um, uh, defeated in the, the, the Senate primaries by Bob Carr, I said, okay, look, that, you know, the, that's, I'm not going to fit their mould. So I actually left politics for about... Five years, six years, and I the, the private sector and working and writing. That's what I did, did the TV shows and my book, the basis of my books. And that was a lot of freedom for me because then I can abuse every side of politics. <laughs> right. And, uh, and then finally, uh, the current Prime Minister, uh, Scott Morrison, he said, Look, we'd like you to come and stand for us. And so we had a, a very serious conversation, and I was, oh, I don't know, back, back into politics and that. Uh, but the, the issue for me was that I think the Labor Party had forgotten their grassroots, which was it was founded by workers. It was founded by people uh, who wanted to uh, improve their lives, to uh, feed their families and buy a home and stuff like that. Very simple, mm. basic stuff. There, there were traders in it. And you see the statistics now. I think the uh, blue-collar workers in Australia, 53% of them actually vote for the Liberal Party, which in my Youth would have been bizarre because of unheard of, yeah, 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 unheard of. They were business; they were about business and big corporations, yeah, and and that was crazy. But now that's sort of fit over. You you, uh, you see the Liberal Party now being about jobs and and uh, uh, and small business, which is what a lot of these uh, tradies becoming you know, electrician then runs electric, you know, self employment and stuff like that. Mm. And so this is where you had this difference in the, in the Labor Party's now as according to a funny place where they're actually the inner city wealthy. The other thing that concerned me with the Labor Party that it was that the, it was, you know, could you imagine this lady Chatley's lover? Uh, the book was banned in Australia for decades. And yeah, yeah. She's in the 70s at the left wing, the Labor Party, that campaigned against censorship. And now you're seeing 
the left in the uh, the Labor Party all on about censorship, and I, I just find that quite bizarre. So, any, anyway, look, I've got great mates in the Labor Party. We're still friends. We, uh, we still have beers and have the footy together and hmm. name them because I'm probably get in trouble. And, <laughs> and, and, look, they're really good mates, and we get on well because at the end of the day, uh, it's one thing I learned about politics, no matter what political side you're on, there are pretty decent people on both sides who are just trying to do the right thing for the, for the public. Right thing. Yeah. And, and there's other people who are just there because of the power hungry. But there are some really good people in, on the right and on the left who are trying to uh, just make people's lives better. So just switching gears a little bit, and we might come back to some of those points um, later on, but I just wanted to get into your most recent book in black and white, and I know you're working yeah. on another one. Um, there aren't many books written by Indigenous voices, and very few of them are as entertaining and and um, genuine and insightful as yours. I think this memoir is just fantastic, and I love the humour that you inject into it. I really connected with it on multiple levels. One of those levels was just sharing a similar background to you and, and growing up in the multicultural parts of Sydney and everything else from boxing and knowing at, from firsthand some of the people and places you, yeah. you spoke about. What inspired you to write in black and white? It was really funny. This bloke, uh, this friend of mine, uh, John Green, who uh, it was an executive at the Macquarie Bank, uh, who I knew and we become very good friends. And, uh, and, he, and he had this sort of midlife crisis type thing and, and he decided to leave banking and, and uh, set up a publishing house. And, and his publishing house was about fiction, so a lot of fiction writing in it. Then he said to me, he said, look, this is about 2011. He said, you should write a book uh, about Australia and about it, the experience, your, your, your experiences in, the, in your life. And I thought, just bore people to death, you know. I got some of these, these biographies and, and I go, oh, my God, this is and, – and, and he said, no, no, you should you should do this. And anyway, I thought about it. And then I started doing some research. The part I love about uh, when I decided to actually do the book and then I – because – it was actually Melbourne University Press. They, they, they were the, John Green put the seat in my head, but they're the ones who actually approached me and said, well, look, uh, you know, we want you to write a political book. And usually they're running down people and gossiping about people and did it. And I'm sure that interests a lot of people, but it didn't interest me. I just wanted to tell a story about Australia and I wanted uh, to use my family as that vehicle, that, that Australian experience. And so that's why I, I went back to John Green, and I think I was only the second um, non-fiction book they uh, actually published. And and they said, he said, yes, I love it. And the other thing that I loved about it was, you know, your parents as your parents, and your grandparents as your grandparents, they become human beings to me. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Is that because of the life. research you did? Yeah, the research. They it, had yeah. a life before me. Yeah, got yeah. married before they had, they 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 had the ups and downs. They become very human to me. And they had a very tough life when they got married. They uh, they lived in a tent on, on the riverbank of the Man River out at Chakadri. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's how they they spent the first few years of their married life. And they were inseparable, weren't they? Your mum and dad. Yeah. Oh, they everywhere they went. It was like. Mm. I was just about to say Cheech and Chong. <laughs> we had the drugs. And they were a funny couple because my father was six foot three and, 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 and my mother was four foot 11. And my mother 
And I think I think it was sort of the Napoleon thing, you know, short people always take up the dictatorial power. My mother ran the house yeah. like a military camp. She, yeah. And, of course, it wasn't until I grew up that I realised when you've got eight sons. You, you have, have to, right? Yeah. You have to because some boys, we're just mad. We, you've got to keep boys alive. If you yeah. keep until they're adults, you've done your job. Yeah. <laughs> and because we used to go out hunting and fishing and do yeah. crap stuff and, and sail down rivers. I remember we put a couple of 44-gallon drums together and put some uh, fence palings across it and hoisted this pirate flag and off we went, and uh, our mates and us went sailing down the, the creek. And that. So, uh, we used to always have cousins who come and stayed with us because, my, 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 you know, because uh, they, you know, they got, they're trying to get away from the welfare board and other places. So my mum and dad used to look after them. And, and so and I went to them and, and videoed them and, and talking about it. Those times of the 1920s and 30s and 40s. Oh, right, yeah. And talking about my parents and and how tough it was for them. And, yeah. You know, living on the, the riverbed and when they, uh, prior to when they, like my father, you know, they, they had a, 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 I got photos of the old humpies they used to live in. And, he, and of course, my, uh, my grandparents lived in the humpy and, and then next to that were the, the girls. And the boys just slept on the ground. Did that shape, sorry to cut you off, but did that shape shape the push and direction of your story? Because a lot of the times mm. when you make those discoveries and insights, it can really reframe yeah. the direction oh, of what you're yeah. writing and I guess the overall themes that come out of And it also yeah. really tied, I got a really, because I've been to a lot of these places and that before, and then I got to look at them in a different Way and, and listen to my cousins talk, learning about the hardships. My grandfather once, uh, you know, the, the welfare board turned up uh, at Bayougaloo, and my grandfather used to lock the back so that so they couldn't come in and take the kids and stuff like that. Mm. And two of my uncles, he come, they come with the police, and I told my uncles to tell them don't come in. And, uh, and my grandfather, so the, he was behind a tree and he pulled a gun on him. And, uh, and so we checked this out. This is a true story. Yeah. And the police, everyone sort of went, oh, my God, the police ran off and, and they went to get some other police to come back. But the station owners there, because of my family that was such hard workers in the stations and such good people, and the station owners run up the police station and said, don't you send the police back here again? These, these Aboriginals here are good people there. So it's stories like that, you know, like my mother, being a strong Catholic, but after me, there was no Catholic high school for, for boys. There was only St Mary's. Uh, college, which was for girls. She wanted us boys to grow up in a Catholic school, so she went to the priest and went to the to the school, the nuns, and then walked them into opening it up. Wow! And so, that, so they, they they were amazing people. When they died, my my mother, she had two archbishops, five bishops, and about five priests, and two thousand people turned up for a funeral. And one of the most moving parts of that was this. This bloke came up to me and he said, oh, I'm not going to put condolences for your mother, for his family and that because of your mother's death. And uh, and I said, oh, so you knew my mother? And he said, he said yeah, I, was, I, I went to uh, St. John's mm. school and uh, and your mother was in touch. We worked in touch shop. Oh, wow. There you go. He is. Yeah. And, he, and he said, I didn't have enough money for, yeah. for this dolly. So and you- so she, she gave me a penny. 
you can see how the combination of your dad's work ethic and your mum's um, want to serve the community, regardless yeah, of where they were from, charity. charity and so on, yeah. that's really had an effect on you. That really yeah. comes through in your book as well. And uh, I just wondered if you could talk to me a little bit about the process. How much of it, just quickly before I ask you my next question, but how much of it goes towards research to the actual physical act of writing and editing and so on? Uh, uh, research is the fun part. I'll, I'll tell you that now. It is... Um, you get out, and I was very lucky that a lot of the cattle stations around our area had these archives in in, the, in, in their uh, family vaults, and, that, and and then also some stuff donated to the local historical societies. I've got some amazing photos which I didn't even know existed, and that was the fun part. It was like it's like in this treasure hunt. Yeah, yeah. This is fun. This is great. Yeah. Uh, when the actual writing comes. Oh, you just write it and rewrite it, and yeah, write. yeah. You give it to the to the editors, and and because you have several editors that work with you, you know, like for continuity. So in, in chapter one, you talk about eighteen fifty nine, and then chapter twenty, you're talking about eighteen eighteen fifty six, and then they have to correct that. You say, well, what was it, fifty six or fifty? So you so get that, and then also uh, we had discussions about language as well. Because uh, when I was growing up, uh, you know, they, those grass bushes, thing, they, they were black boys. We used to call them black boys. And so people, you can't call them black boys. You know, that's a bit racist. I said, well, that's what they were. We call them black boys, you know. So we had the discussion about that. And had all these, so that took quite a while. It was over a year. Over a year. Uh, and uh, every day in there writing it. And then I tell you what, we had a really brilliant editor who was the, a fiction editor, and and uh, she she uh, she said, unlike you know normal things you're doing it in time frame, you know we were able to jump backwards and forwards, and yeah, things yeah. which you can do in a, in a fiction book, and and that just and that made the story even stronger. And because when we sat down and did that, I think oh, this is not going to work, and then and I thought no, it come out really good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely, uh, I, I love it. You talked about reading like. Um fiction it really does it's filled with so many entertaining little experiences that you've had mm. like um, when you were knocking on doors and trying to sort of uh, yes <laughs> you do people to vote for me yeah that was hoping people yeah. would vote for you and yeah. you were dressed up in your suit and the the girls partying thought you were a stripper ah, yes. and stuff yeah. like, i just love it it's just filled with it's yeah. i highly recommend this book guys it is not one of those political leaders style memoirs it is just fantastic i really loved it it's one of my favorite books honestly that i've read in years really oh, thank you and i get a lot of migrants who, who, who talk about it like uh, this greek guy kind of and he said he said i'd like to have a coffee with you and i said oh that's nice or why and he said my wife read your book and she said you got to read it and he said, why would I want to read it and he said this book is like us it's like us we, we were migrants who come out here and we had to struggle and work in the factories and da 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 And he read it and he said, you know what, reading that book and reading about your father and mother, they were just like my parents. And I said, yeah. And they said, yeah. I didn't deliberately do that, but it becomes a human story. Yeah, totally. And I think that's the thing. Like I've always seen you as this respected advisor to politicians and a politician yourself and this community leader. And, you know, through that book, I could connect with you yeah. in a way that I haven't experienced really with many, many books, especially of this genre. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's what, and that's why I wanted it to, to, to be a storyline. I wanted mm. it to be that traditional Aboriginal uh, flow on effect about telling a story. 
And and also, look, I'm a, a you know, I don't, I'm a great believer. I always take the piss out of me because if you get this, you look, you do serious work. You got to because you're dealing with people's lives mm. and and opportunities you can create from an education and some in hospitals and how you work with the sick and that. So it's a very serious business, but you got you don't take yourself seriously. too seriously. Yeah, yeah. Once you start taking yourself so serious, it's it's about you. It's not about them. Yeah. Yeah. You've written and given many speeches. In your book, you mentioned a few. Um, some of your more memorable ones was the uh, speech you gave at the National Native Title Conference in Coffs Harbour in 2005. And you also mentioned another one um, th- uh, that you gave at the Gama Festival in 2013. What do you think makes for a memorable and inspiring speech? It's got to be, it's got to you know, be in a language and a focus that people connect with. Uh, and it's like when I, in the last campaign, I had to go around and, and, and explain the uh, superannuation tax. <laughs> and <laughs> I tell you what, it's, another you get uh, all the good ones, man. That's a, that's I get the good riveting, ones. Riveting, riveting. Uh, I remember when I read it. I woke up two days later. <laughs> so then I had to pull it apart and break it down and, and make it a human experience about. Yeah. How does this, what is this going to do in your retirement? How are you going to live 90 years and how are you going to, who's going to feed you? I take boring, uh, sterile policy stuff and and make it a human story because that's what we're making policies about. That's what we're making legislation about. It's about human beings. And so other than talking in the sterile policy type you actually got to say, well, why are we making this legislation? Why are we making this policy? Because of these people. So then you make it about, it's about them. It's it very similar to what, to what the best marketers of the world do, like Apple. They talk about the human use of their products. They don't talk about yeah. the bells and whistles and the technical details, do they? Yeah. There are very uh, strong parallels between, yeah. Yeah, the song ones. Because, as I said, the law isn't some artificial thing. It was created because... Of, of how do, how how do we interact with each other? How do, as a society, how do we how do we make sure people are protected? So I just don't come knocking on your door and hit you over the head and, and steal all your food and all that type of thing. Mm. That's, it's, so it's about those human experiences which created the law. Sometimes look, some 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 these lawyers and some people, it's only lucky, it's only a few of them that they get caught up in the law rather than why do we have that? Yeah, I think that's what the frustration is for a lot of people who are a little mm. cynical. Political speak, it feels as though they're out legally, out <laughs> out legalizing each other. Or they're, yeah. they're debating Keynesian versus Reaganomics, yeah, and they're right. really caught up in the weeds on that stuff. And everyone else is just scratching their head, going, "What are these guys talking?" Yeah, about? I, I try and avoid yeah. that language. Uh, yeah, yeah, because you know, see, if I just sit there saying Keynesian, you know, we're looking at this Keynesian uh, economic policy, people sort of go, "What the hell?" Is yeah, that? yeah. Uh, then I, I break that down to a human experience or, you know, like Reaganomics, you know, I'm talking about Reagan. I break that down to a human experience uh, and because why else would economics exist if it wasn't for that human experience? Experience, yeah. What would your tips be for someone who wants to get better at public speaking or more persuasive speaking? And not that they've got to go out and study Aristotle's rules of rhetoric or, you know, study and write a thesis on Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, but what are your practical tips for people who want to get better? Uh, I'm a very nervous speaker. I'll be quite honest about it. Yeah, yeah. Because it's not natural for me to just stand up in front of a crowd and do that. So it is a skill you have to develop. 
you know, so people say, look, when you get up, just look at the audience if they're naked. And, and I used to laugh when I thought about it. <laughs> Some of the people in the audience would say, oh, no, I don't yeah. want to see you naked. Yeah. <laughs> and they're probably saying the same thing about me. But it, it's really about uh, do your research mm. and, and be honest about what you're trying to do. Uh, be honest about whatever the subject matter you're saying uh, and talking about. Be honest about it and, 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 and relate it to your audience. You know, like I, usually before I give a speech, I, I'd go sit down in the back of the crowd and I'd just listen to them and see what to who they are and what they're about. Mm-hmm. And I, then I'd get up on stage and I'd know who I'm talking to. And it kind of calms the nerves a bit, doesn't it? You're sort of familiar with them. They're not these, this room of strangers. Yeah, well, sometimes I get caught out. Like I remember once I was, I was stepping up on the stage and I got to the top step, I totally changed my speech because mm-hmm. I, I, I looked at the audience and I went, oh, my God, you know. And that, then I, so I got up and just changed my speech. And, and, the, and the bloke who was working on my speech with me, he said, what the hell happened there? And, and I said, why was the problem? He said, no, that, that speech was better. And I said, oh, because when I got there, I, I suddenly realised it wasn't going to resonate with this. With that audience, yeah. Audience. That's really interesting. So, yeah. It mm-hmm. reminds me of marketing. Like, you, yeah, as mm-hmm. marketers, we start with our market and you have to ensure that mm-hmm. your messages are um, constructed in a way that are going to resonate best with that particular audience. And it just it's the same sort of principles you see, yeah, yeah with, with marketing. And, and, and I don't care how rich and famous or poor or whatever you People resonate when, when you look, you just, I'm talking to you. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking, and of course, people say, how do you do that? You know, like, Hold I, on. You just scan the room. People in the audience. And you, and you do, you, you, it's about the words and the language you choose mm. uh, to, uh, and how you present it to them. And, I, and also because I, I like to have a bit of a, a, a joke in that as well. Yeah. Like, I remember once I, I was talking to this Catholic, this large Catholic gathering, and and I, and I was talking about the, the Pope who gave the speech on, on spirituality, uh, Aboriginal spirituality in Alice Springs in, was it, 1988. And, and, and I got up and I was talking and I said, anyway, this bloke, the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's what happened. I, and I said, yeah, and yeah, people go said, the, yeah. this, this bishop come up and he said, I've never heard someone call this call the Pope a bloke. <laughs> He's a demigod. So, 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 yeah, so, so uh, of course he is. He's the vicar of Christ and he's incredible. Uh, he never makes a mistake, which I find quite funny. Yeah, but you read the audience and you knew that yeah, you could get away with it. So. You straight yeah. away you could, yeah. you, you could crack a joke about it. And, like, I'll talk about this. I saw this thing about Christ, Jesus Christ. Someone said, and I use this too, and I say, oh, what is um, – you know, you're not religious because you had a problem with church authority. Well, Jesus had a bit of a problem with church authority too. Yes, he did indeed. <laughs> they yeah. crucified. Yeah, who was this crazy <laughs> Jewish young rabbi who yeah, was that's right. spouting yes, all of yeah. these crazy ideas? Yeah, yeah, so you've got to take those, you know, you can get, I think life is too short and sweet. I think it's uh, it's, it's too serious to take it serious. It is, yeah. That's um interesting. I... I feel like we could go into a lot of the censorship that's happened through Facebook and social media yeah. and so on. Of it's a scary world at the moment. Yeah. Various. I'm not sure if you want to speak to that, but um, why don't we talk about Australia Day? Australia Day just passed, and I think you you've said that you're a proud Australian, and um, as a member of the First Nations people of Australia and a member of the oldest living culture in the world, the ancient history of our land should be something all Australians can celebrate. Do you think we're any closer? Without going into the whole 
debate because I don't want to. Do you think we're any closer to doing having a date or a day that we can all celebrate? Well, well I, I don't know if we're going to be any close, I don't think any closer to a day, except this year it was, was quite interesting because up until recently there was very this very vitriolic arguments, you know. We remember the speech by an Aboriginal uh, woman in, in in Melbourne who said, "Let's burn the country down." This mm. didn't have any of that, which I thought yeah, yeah. was a, it was more of a mature conversation. Each side come to the table. These are the reasons why we don't want to change that. These are the reasons why we want to change mm. that. And talking about those experiences, so I think this is the, if we do the same thing like that next year, I think we're well on the way. Whether we change the date. Uh, I'm a change the date person, but whether we change the date or not, I think we're we're talking about unity here. And, and most people, I, I don't care where you, who you are, and from my experience with migrants, that people just want to get on with life. Yeah. And, but they also want to know about each other. So learning about each other uh, in, in bringing us together, and even, look, and don't hide the pain and suffering, uh, Talk about it, warts and all, and good, the bad, and the ugly, the beautiful. We've got a great country. Is it perfect? No, it's not. When you have human beings, you know, it's like the old church shilling thing about democracy. Democracy is the worst form of government in the world until you look at all the rest. It's true. It, you know, you don't want to go the other ways because if we may have a punch-up on election day and we don't like each other's policies. It's a lot better to have a vote making a difference and, and someone pulling out guns and shooting each other and running the tanks down the street. Uh, yeah, so that's how I feel about our country. You know, let's, you know, we, we've got great opportunities to learn about each other, teach each other, uh, and we do, and it's not one-way traffic. Uh, you know, from my experience of talking to migrants from the Middle East and, and from Europe and those older ones who come to Australia and couldn't speak English and how they struggled and that, I learned from them. And I'm hoping they learn a little bit about Aboriginal people from me as well. That's fantastic. That's really good. You spoke about elections quickly, and um, I'd like to do a little quick round of your thoughts in a sentence for each question. I don't want you to go on too, <laughs> too long because I'm an, I told you, I promise I promise you this wouldn't be political, but I, I, I think everyone would want me to ask you yeah. your opinions. They don't have to be long, and they can, yeah. and I won't. Question your I'll try, I'll try. I won't question your responses, but just in a sentence, talk to me about some of the topics because we've had COVID nineteen, we've had Biden versus Trump. So I'll just rattle through a few of them. First one yeah. would be the Trump election and Trump's defeat, Joe Biden and the presidency. What are your thoughts there? We really got to get to the real issue. Uh, the problem wasn't Trump or Biden. The problem was why? Why did Trump win? Yeah. And, and, and that's because a large part of society, and it is in Australia as well, a large part of You mean Australia, when he first won and then why he, Yeah, when he first won yeah, sure. and, then, and then Biden won in the second. Uh, is because people, and America is, you know, when we look at it, it's only 50,000 votes. Could you mm. imagine that of 300,000 people? Or if, if Trump got 50,000 votes in, in certain seats, he would have been president again. That's, not, that's a very small number. It just shows you how divided the United States is. Yeah, yeah. So we, uh, we in Australia, we're, we're getting the same way. But, yeah. uh, so we've got to really look at what the issues. Brexit. Why did Britain pull out of Brexit? Why did people, like even Labor Party people, the leadership in the British Labor Party were saying we need to stay in Brexit. But their voters said no. Mm. So why <laughs> is this disconnect between the leaderships? And and the, the general population out there and the divide in the population. And it's not there's always been divides in the population, but now it's sort of like 
black and white. Really yeah, well, that, that leads me to the next few questions because you could say COVID-19, why was the simple act of public health, personal hygiene and wearing masks and, and the concept of vaccines so politicised and why did it amplify those divisions in people? Because of exactly the same reasons, you know. And look, we've been through these things before. I remember as a kid, uh, you know, you had polio on that. I had kids come to my school in, in class or in, in campus and that. And we knew of people, we might not know them personally, but we did know of people who were in, 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 uh, in one of the iron lungs because they could, they, they're totally brittle with polio and they couldn't even breathe. So the iron mm. lung had the work, which is that old joke, you know, you're so lazy, you stop an iron lung. But, but it wasn't political. It was about saving people's lives. The next one is on censorship and Facebook's recent uh, and Twitter's recent blocking of politicians and private citizens who may have um, various political opinions, whether they be on the left or the right of politics. What are your thoughts there? I look, the, the problem we had, like I put on Twitter once, I said it wasn't so much the blocking of people and banning people, it was about the inconsistencies. So these big tech companies are now have become enormous and become, they have broken through the sovereignty of nations. And this is what this battle is at the moment with, with uh, Facebook. Uh, Facebook uh, believes it's above that sovereignty. Above the nation. And, and look, we used to have horror movies like that in the 70s. They used to come about the corporate world taking over nations and taking over society. And, and now we're starting, we're seeing that that happen, you know. Uh, it is a very serious thing. I don't, I don't, you don't want to have terrorists and pedophiles in that operating in this space. Just banning people because of their political beliefs, I think, is is going in a very dangerous area. Would you agree that politicians, in some cases, not all, but have helped amplify some of these divisions that Facebook can perpetuate to to suit their political gain uh, in some some way? They do, they do, and they've leaned too hard into culture. Well, like we're seeing these ridiculous things. We just saw recently with the Australian National University. Uh, the academia has gone a bit lunatic. Now, it's not all academia, because I know a lot of lecturers and professors, that they're really decent and good people, very smart people. But you get these silly policy areas where they come out and says you can't say mums and dads anymore. Why? And they say, oh, we want to be inclusive. So you're going to be inclusive by mums and dads. That's just nonsense. One of the gay and lesbian and trans community, they sort of sit there and go, what's this about? It's, you know, and it's, like, and it's like what happens with, with you know Aboriginal people and African Americans. That there's a whole cohorts of people out there who want to protect us. No, we don't need protecting. We're adults. You know, we can look after ourselves, please. Stop all this nonsense. Mm. And why do you think that is? Is that because those issues have been politicised so much so that there's a whole industry of people around that? Um, oh, the private sector exists. Exist, you can see it. exist you on. Can see- the politicisation of those issues as opposed to mucking in and doing something about it. Yeah. Well, well, critical race theory, is, to me, is a racist theory. Because I did, and I had an, uh, an argument with a, with a bloke about this, and I said, I'm not a victim, but because I'm, I'm, I've got, I'm of Aboriginal descent, that, uh, that I'm oppressed. But I'm not oppressed. And just because some person's white, that they're the oppressor, and you can't change that. That is just nonsense. Martin Luther King fought for decades for the right that his children to be judged not by the colour of their skin but be judged by their character. And that's all we should do. We should be judging people by their character. And, and, and look, I, I believe 90-something percent of the population gets really on well and they deal with these issues. It's only this tiny little mob 
who, who are trying to divide us. And, and the politicians and large corporations, unfortunately, are listening to this stuff. You... Um... You mentioned this wonderful thing about keeping our politicians honest, and you said we have to vote on their policies and their ideas. And if you just simply voted along ideological lines, it'd be like walking into a car yard and just telling the salesman you'd buy that car at whatever price you say, and so you're essentially an easy vote. How can voters be a bit more informed, and what can you do to sort of ensure that we're keeping our politicians honest? You've Some people treat politics like their football team now. Yeah. Uh, I'm a mad West supporter and, and, and we've been through dreadful times and we've been through some great times and that. Uh, but I'll never support another team, even, even, if we, even if we've got the crookest team in the world. Uh, <laughs> um, and they treat their politics like that. They'll, they'll be voting Liberal or they'll be voting Labor no matter what. Yeah, easy votes, right? I mean, that's what yeah, they're, yeah. they're buying. And we've got to stop that. We've got yeah, to stop yeah. that and, and because... Yeah. We've got to vote on the, on, the, on the politics. Okay, what? How does this improve our society? How does this improve my life and my children's life? And, and vote on those on those issues. When you get caught up in this ideological drive, you know, like, like we talked earlier about economics, and people saying, "Oh, Keynesian or the Chicago School." You know, what does that mean? And, and you'll find that there are parts of these things which you do like. And there are parts you don't like. So let's let's have a more common sense approach and how we can move these things through rather than having this just this sure. chucking lines at each other. That's a really good call. And that's the last of my political questions, aren't you relieved? No, good. I can, I can, I can relax now. Uh, mate, that's okay. I just wanted to keep you on your toes, keep you honest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's okay. So as far as making a difference through persuasive writing and public speaking, if you could distill your core beliefs and philosophy into a bite of wisdom, what would that be? Wisdom, gee. A bite of wisdom. You take all of that, that. all of that wisdom, all of that stuff, all of your your philosophy. I I use a bit of a religious, I I use a bit of a religious thing, which is, you know, you treat other people like you you like to be treated. And and also you uh, you need to forgive people and uh, and, you, and they need to forgive you. We have this much. We've got this thick human beings. But that much is the difference. You know, we have different languages, different culture, different mm. eating. There, a lot of that stuff's wonderful to learn their language, and culture, and stuff. But the rest of it, you see each other. We love our children. Yeah, yeah. We love our mums and dads. These are not one particular ethnic group or faith or atheist group in the world. It's every human being has that. Yeah, yeah. So treat people the way you want to be treated. That's your yeah. bite of wisdom. And that Absolutely. carries so much weight given what we've discussed and your motivations for your writing mm. and, and your purpose and what you're going out there to try and achieve. Mm. I thank you so much, Mr. Warren Mundine. I really appreciate your time. Okay, thank you. It's been fantastic speaking to you. I'd love to be able to chat to you offline about a whole host of things. Well, I'm, very, people... I'm very cheap. I, 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 I'm very cheap. <laughs> a cup of tea or a nice beer, I'm very <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, just quickly, <laughs> where can people um, find out more about you? Where can they buy your books? Uh, well, they're all in very good bookshops like uh, Dimmix and stuff. You can buy them online. Yeah, uh, you know, I've got uh, several books out at the moment. Uh, I, I really want to. I'd like to, uh, you know, write about my sisters. I really want to write mm. amazing free free women. I suppose I've got the title there, the, the Free Sisters. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and, uh, and I write about other people too because I, I, I do, I love reading about people. I love meeting people. I love hearing their stories. I'm yeah. a great in, you know, everyone talks about two ears and a mouth, and that's how you should operate. I'm a great believer. You've got two ears where you listen, 
you've got two eyes where you observe. Observe, yeah. And, and, yeah, and then you talk. It's well, great. I can't wait to read your next book, and I highly recommend the ones that you've got out there at the moment. Um, is yeah. there a website we can go to, or can we just Google? I mean, you, you're out there. We... Oh, yeah, just Google out there. It's out there. Look, if you were to ask me where I am today when I was a kid, I would sort of look at you like, what the hell are you talking about? Enjoy life. Uh, it's um, enjoy your family and enjoy, you know, you see silly families who, who all have an argument and they've both talked to each other for years and, and they've even forgotten what the argument was about. Look, we've got a great world. Uh, Civilisation is probably at, a, at a, the best it's ever had with health, people living longer, education, uh, lifestyles, and, and, and there's not something we can't fix these days. And so we need to, you know, we need to... Come together and, uh, you know, have a bit of a laugh, have a bit of fun, take the piss out of each other and have a beer. Young guy, Warren Mundine, AO, you are an absolute legend, a fantastic man, and I wish you all the best. Thank you once again for being on the podcast. Thank you, James, and, and to all the listeners out there. I hope you enjoy. Thank you. Cheers. Yeah. That was awesome, mate. Fantastic. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Good night. Well, that was uh, great. If you'd like to find out more about me or the B-Side podcast, please visit jamesbside.com. That's one word, jamesbside.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at B-Side Podcast. If you have any suggestions or feedback on the show, please email me at hello at jamesbside.com. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. The B-Side with James Barrow is produced by me, and I really hope it's helped unlock your creative potential. Thanks for listening, and until next episode, cheers. Cheers.